This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. On today's show, we plan to get by with a little help from our friends, as we often do. In this case, uh, this should involve the help of one of our newer friends, one of our fellow public affairs hosts here on KDVS. I'm referring to DJ Letch, also known as Jesse Schmidt, who hosts Intercourse on Intercourse here on this very station. It's a gutsy program. Talks about things like masturbation, reproductive justice, virginity, and the various definitions of that. Definitely not the kind of stuff you hear on commercial radio. We look very forward to talking with Jesse in segment two today. But let us begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today would be the 29th of March. And it was on March 29th in 1797 that the English social critic Mary Wollstonecraft, an early activist for women's rights, married William Godwin, the most famous radical reformer of his day. The two were apparently philosophically opposed to marriage, but Mary was pregnant with a girl. The future Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, author of Frankenstein. And you know, Mary Wollstonecraft is probably worth a slight digression to start today's show. She is considered by historians to be the first modern feminist. Mary was born in England during the Age of Reason, a period of revolution and change in both America and France. After her first novel, which met modest success, she moved to London and supported herself as a writer, reader, and translator. There she became involved with a radical circle of intellectuals with whom she dined each Thursday, including the revolutionary Thomas Paine, the poet William Blake, and the chemist Joseph Priestley, among others. Shunning the traditional restraints that normally bound women, she soon made a name for herself by actively defending the most progressive ideas of her day. Her pioneer work, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, 1792, was based on the premise that freedom and equality apply to women as well as men, caused an immediate sensation and made her one of the most famous and controversial women in Europe. She insisted that governments were obliged to provide an education for all their citizens with equal access guaranteed for women. She also asserted that, that a marriage where the wife was a mere adornment, a bearer of children, or used only for physical release, was unacceptable and proposed there be an intellectual companionship and equality between partners. Her crusading ideas were not often repeated, much less act upon for a century following. On March 29th in 1807, the brightest asteroid on record, Vesta, was observed for the first time by the German astronomer Heinrich Olbers. And uh, something that this correspondent must regard as miraculous and wonderful, it so happens that 205 years after its discovery, at present, NASA has a spacecraft orbiting Vesta taking pictures. Vesta is the brightest asteroid because apparently sometime in the past it got smacked by another large body, chipping off a lot of its surface, and not coincidentally, showering the Earth with numerous meteorites from this asteroid. Making it probably only the third body in outer space with which you can uh, shell out some money and buy a piece of if you're so inclined, the others being the Moon and Mars. Mr. McMillan is expressing some skepticism over this claim. But the fact is, sir, we, we know certain 
Uh, meteorites on Earth came from the moon because of the rocks brought back by the Apollo astronauts. We know certain meteorites came from Mars because little tiny trapped bits of gas match the uh, the data sent back by spacecraft on Mars. And we're, we're sure that we have chunks of Vesta because the spectrum of that asteroid is quite unique and matches that of the uh, rocks that fell from the sky. And I have to admit, that, that does sound kind of hard to believe, but uh, we refer you to the web for more information on this. Also, your local geology department. On this date in 1885, in his Atlanta, Georgia backyard, Dr. Joseph Pemberton brewed up his first batch, what he called his, quote, brain tonic and intellectual beverage, unquote. Yes, indeed, was this was the first batch of Coca-Cola. And uh, despite the rather astonishingly misleading data you will find on the Coca-Cola website, for a long time, starting with day one, Coca-Cola did contain cocaine. And in fact, ladies and gentlemen, since every can of Coke you've ever drunk still contains, quote, natural flavorings, unquote, among its ingredient list, there's still some cocaine in Coca-Cola. Admittedly, minuscule amounts, not enough to do anything, but doggone it, it is there. And for more information on that, we refer you to our very own archives here at Radio Parallax at radioparallax.com, where we talk with William Poundstone about, among other things, his book, Big Secrets, wherein he reveals, at least in part, the formula for Coca-Cola. This date in 1919, observations of stars during a total solar eclipse showed that gravity could indeed bend light rays, supporting a key element of Albert Einstein's theory of relativity. And finally, on this date in 1972, the unmanned U.S. space probe Mariner 10 became the first to visit the planet Mercury. It sent back close-up images of a celestial body difficult to observe because of its proximity to the sun. And in another coup for NASA, Mercury has been revisited and is currently being orbited by the MESSENGER spacecraft, which just last week sent back some data which appears to confirm the suspicion that on this roasting planet, deep in craters near the pole, there is actually ice. Yes, water ice, even though the surface temperature in most of Mercury runs about 700 degrees on a hot day. The reason it survives near the poles is, the, is that the craters are so deep they never receive any sunlight. And that water will prove to be a very valuable resource if we ever send astronauts to the first planet orbiting the sun. Of course, the way NASA's going, it'll probably be cosmonauts or taikonauts that get there first. Taikonauts are what the, the Chinese are calling their men in space, or, or women in space, as the case may be. You know, when, when it comes to our quote, quip, and joke of the day, it appears the writers for Jimmy Fallon need a raise, because we're going to give them the hat trick for today's show. So the writers for Jimmy Fallon sometime recently, there are reports that John Edwards visited a brothel here in New York while running for president and paid with campaign funds. Do you realize what this could do to his reputation? Absolutely nothing. Our quip of the day part one from Jimmy Fallon is that Disney will lose $200 million on its new movie, John Carter, about a Civil War soldier on Mars. Disney could tell they were going to lose lots of money when they realized they had made a movie about a Civil War soldier on Mars. 
Quip B from Mr. Fallon is, The Hunger Games is expected to make $130 million at the box office this weekend. Experts say the movie has one quality you look for in a film. It's not about a Civil War soldier on Mars. Finally, our joke of the day from Mr. Fallon is that, quote, A man in Oregon said his snow globes started on fire after he left them in the sun too long. Fortunately, his wife was not injured because she left him when he started collecting snow globes. That of the day is 1,452%, which represents the salary hike for the average member of Congress after he or she leaves office and becomes a corporate lobbyist. That's according to The Nation magazine. It was apparently a good week this week for interstate highway driving. When drivers cruising on Interstate 270, about 35 miles northwest of Washington, D.C., observed two plastic bags falling out the back of an armored car containing about $5,700 in bills and coins. According to witnesses, about 30 cars pulled over to the shoulder and began frantically collecting fistfuls of cash. The Maryland State Police have urged people to return the money to the Garda World Security Services Corporation, which lost it, stating that no questions will be asked. And while it's good that no questions will be asked, we don't have any data that any money was returned either. It was a bad week last week for situational awareness. After a 45-year-old Bonnie Miller of Benton Harbor, Michigan, fell off a pier into Lake Michigan while texting. She had to be rescued by a passerby who dove into the water with the help of police who used a rope tied to a life preserver. And please, if you must text while walking on a pier, do take the time to look up now and again. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for vanity plates after a Canadian woman pled guilty to trying to transport 24 pounds of cocaine in an SUV with the license plate Smuggler. And all this is hard to believe. Apparently, at the time of arrest, she was staying in the Smuggler's Inn. You know, I think this woman was a poor choice to try and bring illegal substances over an international border. And now let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, and a rather sad note, we would cite the Inside Business uh, column, Sacramento Bee by Bob Shallot, who noted on Saturday that the nation's last remaining Lions restaurant at 30th and J in Sacramento was closing its doors the next day. Noted Mr. Shallot, it's the end of an era for Lions, which was founded in the 1950s and once had about 70 outlets, including a half dozen or so in the Sacramento area. The same column noted that over at the Sacramento News and Review, Melinda Welsh, who's been editor-in-chief off and on since the News and Review's debut back in 1989, is opting to step down. Evidently, News and Review owner and CEO Jeff Von Kainel is uh, conducting a national recruitment effort to replace Melinda, who evidently is going to stay on uh, the governing board. 
over the years. I know we've gotten uh, an attaboy or two from Melinda Welsh for the work we do on this program, and we like to return the favor. The News Review does some excellent reporting, and that, of course, is why we quote from them quite often. Someone else who does some excellent reporting, but who unfortunately is yet to give us an attaboy, would be Rachel Maddow. Mark Evanier posted a rather extensive clip from Rachel on his website, newsfromme.com, where she explained that Mitt Romney is, well, a liar. There's just no other way to put it. Rachel appeared on David Letterman earlier this week to talk about her new book, Drift, The Unmooring of American Military Power. She argues in the book that the U.S. has wandered dangerously from the Founding Fathers' vision of a commander-in-chief constrained by a Congress that openly debates and decides what wars to fight. Noted the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Maddow traces the erosion of constitutional checks that prevent commanders-in-chief from unilaterally launching hostilities without public consent. A series of Oval Office decisions, stretching from LBJ's move to send 100,000 more men to Vietnam in 1965, to Bush's shock and awe 2003 campaign in Iraq, hacked away at those safeguards. One figure appears repeatedly in Maddow's political narrative, the former vice president, Dick Cheney. In roles ranging from the House Intelligence Committee as a congressman to defense secretary to White House operative to the vice president, the man liberals love to hate accumulated an institutional knowledge and cynical worldview that enabled presidents to put troops in harm's way at deferred political cost. She noted on the Letterman show that uh, LBJ was in favor of uh, using a draft to send troops to Vietnam because if he used the reserves, then some of the sons of congressmen and senators would be put in harm's way and that, that would erode support for the war. Without a draft now, we have to rely on the reserves as we do, as we do sending them on tour after tour after tour of duty. Which is being blamed in part for the fiasco of... Uh, this soldier, Staff Sergeant, Sergeant Robert Bales, murdering 17 innocent Afghanis for no reason that anyone can understand. And I don't know uh, whether it's true, but I've read some reports that uh, Afghan observers note that this was not the act of a single individual. Of course, uh, Sergeant Bales has been whisked out of Afghanistan, has been brought home, and he's now lawyering up. His lawyers are already saying, well, he doesn't, doesn't really remember what happened. And, you know, he was on some medications that may have contributed to this, you know, some anti-malarials, perhaps. And doggone it, we may not be able to have a trial on this for, oh, years. Unfortunately, we'll probably talk more about uh, this sad case in the future, but what I do, do want to note today is that before joining the military in late 2001, Robert Bales was accused of multiple instances of securities fraud. That included a May 2000 complaint alleging Bales bilked over six hundred thousand dollars from an elderly Ohio couple's retirement fund. That's according to the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, or FINA, which is an independent securities regulator. An arbitration conducted by the FINRA in 2003 found Bales jointly responsible for paying the Ohio couple for $1.49 million in damages and legal fees. Bales did not appear at the dispute resolution hearing, and the FINRA records indicate he never paid any of the amount for which he was found liable. Also, according to reports, he was at one point ordered to take anger management classes after he allegedly assaulted a woman. He was later cited for a hit-and-run car accident. 
So, is anyone surprised when we give a sociopath an automatic weapon and send him to a war zone and then problems ensue? All right, we need to take a break in a minute or two, but I'm not going to end on that one. But rather, the curious fact that the February 18th issue of New Scientist magazine had an article about how every so often a loud booming sound gets heard over the horizon without any obvious explanation. The article by science writer Kate Revilius notes that audible sound waves can be created by an earthquake if conditions are right. And right about the time this article came out, there was a piece in the daily papers noting that there were some mysterious booming noises heard in Wisconsin. Noted the AP, Dateline Clintonville, Wisconsin, sleepless families in a small Wisconsin town long for quiet after mysterious booming noises over the past few nights roused them from bed and sent residents into the street, sometimes still in pajamas. The strange disturbance sounds like distant thunder, fireworks, or someone slamming a heavy door. Authorities said at first that uh, the granite rock near Clintonville did not have any uh, geologic fault zones. But upon further inspection, uh, the Clintonville city administrator, Linda Kuss, decided a few days later that uh, they'd solve the mystery, and the rumbling can be explained by a 1.5 magnitude earthquake that struck Tuesday and was confirmed by federal geologists. The blurb on this quotes USGS geophysicist Paul Caruso saying that he's skeptical that such a small earthquake could produce the loud booms that shook many residents awake. Maybe Mr. Caruso should read the article in New Scientist because they point out that granite rock or a a similar hard rock uh, is uh, is a candidate for the source of uh, these loud noises. Interesting story. And if you're a geologist who wants to weigh in on this controversy, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We, however, need to take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned. We're going to talk about sex. (laughs) 